Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush, Alva Ray, and Patrick Maguire. Today, we're going to talk about the government's response to the coronavirus. You ask us about Alex Salmon's trial. And we also go through Patrick's very long profile of Keir Starmer to work out what kind of Labour leader that he'll be. And we're also planning on doing two podcasts a week now in these new times. So tune in on Mondays and Thursdays. So it's our, our second socially distanced New Statesman podcast and our first in our new shape. So we will be doing this twice a week. So Anoush, we, we've had our first big sort of set of policy meet on income protection for people in this period in which the economy is, is frozen in carbonite. How did Rishi Sunak do? So Rishi Sunak announced some measures to try and make sure that workers aren't going to be laid off in this time, even if their businesses aren't running. So that would be for employees through grants that are from the government to pay up to 80% of the salary of your workers to try and stop companies laying them off. And then on the other end of that, there are changes to the benefit system to ensure that people who are self-employed or who aren't on those direct employment contracts can get the money that they need if they don't have work coming in over this period. And it's that second group of people where the problems lie because the measures for self-employed people or people who are on the type of contracts like casual contracts, zero hours contracts who don't meet the threshold for statutory sick pay aren't going to be getting enough of the benefits that they need. First of all, because statutory sick pay itself is so low. So even the benefit equivalent of that, which um, they've tried to roll out for self-employed people, won't be enough for people to live on. And people who have the capital or savings above what you need to be able to to claim universal credit will have to run their savings down first. But also there's a five week wait for universal credit still, which means that there's not really that incentive to make sure people stay inside immediately, which is basically, you know, the idea of this is to try and make sure that people aren't so hard up that they they feel like they have to carry on working even if they shouldn't. So one of the many frustrating things this weekend, I thought about a lot of the sort of media treatment of, you know, the public and indeed 
slightly weirdly to my surprise uh, of, of the Prime Minister's response to them was this kind of like, you know, there was that BBC photo of Columbia Flower Market, which is uh, relatively near to where, where I am now socially distancing from. People just like, why are they doing this? And just like, well, because they're in the 15% of the economy that is self-employed. They have received this very time-limited stock and if they can't tell if they still have to pay for and they have as it stands at time of recording no tangible guarantee that they will not be ruined if they don't if they go inside and let their stock rot and kind of this whole weird debate about oh you know is it time to have more draconian measures well you can't in a pandemic successfully enforce draconian measures if people feel they have they can't stay inside i guess yeah the interesting question like patrick i know you've been doing sort of like kind of Tory MP whispering is um what do they think the cause of the sort of the delay to providing clarity to self-employed people is? So yeah, Tory MPs are nervous about two things. One, they're nervous about the evidence from other European countries that have been uh, namely Italy. They're wondering why we haven't followed Italy's lead in terms of imposing a um a more draconian uh, system of lockdown. You look at Austria as well. Tory MPs say, look, they've locked down. Their new cases are decreasing. Why aren't we doing the same? Uh, we're not taking this remotely seriously enough. Obviously, the temptation on the uh, on Twitter has been to blame Dominic Cummings per Tim Shipman and Caroline Wheeler's long read yesterday for being the author of the um, the sole author of the so called herd immunity uh, policy that the government pursued in the early phases of this outbreak. You do you, but that I don't think is entirely accurate or fair to pin this all on Dominic Cummings as much as it makes for good copy. And the second thing is the sort of obverse uh, or the reverse uh, of the the Boris Johnson electoral asset coin, right? Which was because Boris Johnson is, you know, optimistic, in his own words the other day, boosterish, he likes delivering good news. He's an upbeat, he's a peppy speaker. He's an after-dinner speaker. And you know, has a knack for Woodhousian turns of phrase that, again, make for good copy in peacetime, as it were. But Tory MPs uh, are certainly quite concerned about his ability to communicate advice, in inverted commas, which is less sort of well-meaning sartorial advice that won't kill you if you don't take to, yeah, no, no I really don't think you should, um, you know, go and fetch your Frisbee from that electrical substation. That sort of advice. So yeah, and they're, they're concerned about Boris Johnson's ability to communicate that clearly, which explains the um, the unsolicited Twitter DM I got from a former cabinet minister yesterday afternoon, which just read, "Ah, bear in mind, I've never had a proper, I've never ever spoken to this former cabinet minister in person. Self isolation and probably their own children has driven them so mad that they were moved to send a long stream of vowels to yours truly." So actually, I mean, the thing I'm kind of interested in is. In terms of the clarity of the government's advice, Albert, do you think if you go to a park for some exercise, do you have to remain two metres away from everyone, including the person in your household or just people not in your household? Um, I think you can stay close to the person who's in your household since you're close to them indoors anyway. And that is probably what is partly giving rise to these pictures in parks of people who don't seem to be observing that two meter distance rule is that is that where you're going with that oh well no it's more than so it's partly that but the thing i'm really intrigued about on my instagram is a surprising number of people clearly do seem to 
think that they need to be two meters apart from the people they live with, which obviously you're right, they don't. But I'm just kind of intrigued as to whether or not, yeah, I just thought I would do a kind of straw poll. So I actually think maybe this really only applies to people my age, but there is a phenomenon of people in their sort of early and mid 20s who live in London or live in a big city who are at this time going home to their parents if they're able to work from home or okay. lost their job or something people like Patrick going back to their family homes to wait out this period with them and I think it varies by household on whether you quarantine afterwards um so I think it is possible in some households that once the Patrick Maguire equivalent has walked in walked in the door from London or whatever that you don't have any close contact with your family members and that you isolate yourself for about seven days within your room or whatever and you you disinfect the bathroom after you use it I have lots of friends who've been doing that yeah I mean I not to sound inappropriately frivolous at this time of national crisis but I um, spent most of my teenage years in not this house but a house just down the road my parents have recently moved house to uh, self-isolating my bedroom anyway Uh, but you raise an interesting you raise an interesting question because one of my parents, German Shepherds, has just had a litter of five puppies. How, how many German Shepherds do your parents have? My parents have three German Shepherds. Um, well, I'm never visiting you. Okay, cool. Well, nobody, well, nobody can, nobody, nobody can. No, well, lucky, lucky you, because um, because nobody's invited. Yeah, and it, I'm sort of looking out the window onto um, a residential street in Southport, and it's still it's still quite busy out there. I think like, the interesting. The interesting thing there, there, Alva, in terms of like you know people going back, you know, to to be with their families, if it, you know, which obviously is a decision various people are taking in terms of their caregiving responsibilities and how they can can best facilitate them, is I do think one of the weird problems in the last in over the last weekend is people basically kind of going, well, I know I have a good reason to be out here, but you must be taking an unnecessary risk because like we don't know. Like that is, I think, my central objection to all of those photos is we don't know why people are doing things. Although the thing I'm finding both grimly terrifying and oddly hilarious at the moment is obviously I live uh, op- op- on a street where there are loads and loads of groceries and butchers is watching people try and guess what two metres apart is and either guessing wildly over, right? I, I saw someone who may have been a good five metres away from someone. And the next person, of course, looked at that distance and went, okay, well, I need to be that far apart. So you have this like, elongated queue and on the other hand you had some people who like they were maybe three feet away from each other and it's just like I can see what's happened here on both both instances and it's kind of like you know the, it, it would be a bit like if we like took a bunch of cars got rid of all of the street furniture and went good luck lads guess what side of the road yeah guess how you need to avoid each other and then yeah. like start doing think pieces about how people were too stupid not to crash into each other who knew that the metric martyrs were right all along this sort of halfway house between imperial and metric is uh, utterly unintelligible to the people who need to hear this message most. I agree. It's the same point. Um, There's been no visual demonstration of what two metres actually means. And also, if you look at the actual social distancing guidelines online, there's no mention of two metres. It's really confusing. You know, we're talking about it here. We're all watching the press conferences every day. We're covering it. We're speaking to people on the front line and politicians too every day. And even we are unable to answer some of these questions. So I think that's when you you can sort of conclude that the advice has been extremely confusing. It is a huge communications failure, basically, isn't it? I mean, even the idea of social distancing, that I don't think adheres to any basic comms 
consensus. You know, you should use language that people already understand. Stay at home makes far more sense. And then this idea of staying two meters apart. I mean, as you were all saying, people need to be given a demonstration of what that looks like. That's all very well and good in parks. But I don't think that most pavements are two meters wide or it depends where it is. But basically, if, you, if you're walking down the street and you're on the pavement, it's, it's nigh on impossible to be over two meters away from someone. So you pretty much need to cross the road to avoid the person or really like go to opposite poles of the pavement. But things like that. I mean, I think the government needs to literally provide visual demonstrations of what that would look like in practice if people you know in it people will inevitably be going out to stretch their legs especially people who don't have access to to gardens or green spaces within their own homes and you know people are gonna you're gonna cross paths with people on the street occasionally you need to know what to do well, well contrast contrast boris johnson's messaging on this to nicola sturgeon's who has you know nicola sturgeon's her line that she keeps hammering home and it's you know a, a comms masterstroke rather than a comms failure as most of Boris Johnson's press conferences have been in terms of the clarity and concision of the message is if you're carrying on as normal you shouldn't be compare that to Boris Johnson on on Sunday or Saturday no it's on Sunday actually uh, talking about Britons having an inalienable right to go to the pub I mean come on like you know mm. Stop burying the lead. I also think one of the interesting things with Boris Johnson's press conferences is this remarkable ability to talk as though he's not the person issuing the advice. That, you know, especially on Sunday when he was thanking people for what they're doing, you know, and apologizing to everyone who was forced to do something different, forced to close their pub, everyone who's had to change their way of life, everyone who's been told to. He uses the passive all the time as though it wasn't he himself who issued that advice he's so apologetic about it that it completely undermines his message that's really interesting I hadn't actually picked up on that but I think that's right he kind of wants to outsource the difficult decision making or at least the the announcements on on what new restrictions are in place to to other people yeah I think it's I also hadn't spotted that at all I I think both of you are completely right as Patrick said there's this continual kind of like this inability to not say something interesting when he's giving a press conference he's just like no if I'm not bored of what you're saying at this point there is no way anyone normal who's not being paid touch wood uh to to watch this is <laughs> is paying enough attention and then as Albert says there's this kind of yeah this weird sort of like oh shucks it's it's not me who's 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 doing all of this stuff. I think it's interesting because one of the things we often, well, I say we, that's in, that, that in of itself is useful. That's one of the things I often complain about is a lot of media commentary acts like we are, you know, we're, we're, we're not participants purely by, by nature of, you know, do it. Yeah. So I, the one which always sticks with me is after, before the BBC debate in the last election, them saying, you know, Joe Swinton started this campaign saying she was going to be prime minister. She's not even in this debate. And it's like, but she's not in this debate because you, the BBC, didn't invite her. And Boris does that same thing where it's kind of just like, oh, you're acting as if, oh, this thing which I am the direct author of, right? Like it is true that a lot of the a lot of the journalists covering this are treating this primarily as a palace intrigue story. But they choose to invite the political journalists to the big set piece event. They choose to go to political correspondent. They could. They, I mean. God knows it wouldn't be the first time that any Downing Street has managed to che- has 
has said it will pick and choose who it would prefer to take questions from, right? They could choose to make sure that the big televised set piece where they announce their new measures happened with science correspondence. If they wanted to do that, they could do that. Well, if you, I think it's worth zooming back out to the Daily Telegraph, Max Hastings' Daily Telegraph, uh, just to pick up something you said about uh, Johnson being able to say anything boring. If you think about how he cut his teeth, even when he was a news reporter, he was a controversialist. There was a sort of fictitious non-fiction, if that's not to David Runciman in its sort of um, <laughs> construction. And then when he was, you know, he was a he was a controversialist columnist, you know, a a, a populist mayor. He's never done. You know, and even when, even when he, when's the last time, when, when did he respond to a crisis as London Mayor? The riots, right? You know, he came up late from his holiday, and then the sum of his response was, in terms of the public facing response, was, you know, waving a broom around on, on, on Tottenham High Street. You know, it wasn't a, you know, let's get to the the root of this social breakdown. It was, you know, watch apes, jolly hockey sticks, let's clean up this mess and um, go and play, uh, go and play deck quoits. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like when you watch those press conferences, he sort of starts out and you think, okay, you know, maybe he's going to say something new or maybe it's going to be better this time. And then you just watch him getting bored of it, which I find the most offensive thing about watching them is you can just see that he's so rattled and so bored by the fact that it's even happening. Well, this is exactly what Lisa Nandy was saying um, when I spoke to her on the podcast last week. She was saying that what what she was quite careful not really to mention Boris Johnson by name until I brought him up but I think that this was an implicit criticism of him she was sort of saying that from a leader you need to feel like they're invested in it and that they care and they have a stake in it too that the person who's leading you also has a family has people that they're worried about is making changes to their lives is feeling the emotions of of the experience along with everyone else and you really I think fundamentally don't feel like Boris Johnson is experiencing that yeah, I mean that it, that was really represented in what what he said about Mother's Day, where it was just completely muddled and confusing. Whereas it was an opportunity for him to lead by example and say, "Oh, you know, I would have loved to see my mother this Mother's Day, but my partner is a is pregnant." You know, he could he could say all sorts of things that would be relatable to people and suggest that he has skin in this game as well. But he just looks sort of annoyed mm. that he has to deal with it. What does sedulously even mean? And I say this yeah, as someone who I've never who... heard that. So someone who not long ago sparked a an intense row on the New Statesman web desk for filing a filing a piece that contained the word dirigisme. Um And again, I'd like to reiterate, what's wrong with the word status? They mean well, dirigisme is a certain kind of statism, and I will stick to that position until I die. Do write in if you've any strong opinions on Patrick's <laughs> Patrick's use of the word dirigisme. Also, Bet Noir and Amy Nance Greaves. <laughs> oh, geez, oh, I feel so seen. <laughs> well, best the Thoris Maguire's word of the day. <laughs> I'm control effing my book manuscript as we speak. But I, I do think there's a serious point, which is that if even Patrick is listening to a word and going, Oi, mate, what's that? Then it shouldn't be used. And I, I don't know about anyone else, but I keep having stress flashbacks to the 2015 election debates in which the most Googled term was, What is austerity? And like a bunch of political journalists, we people we all kind of did this kind of chin stroking take where we went, maybe we should think about how we communicate to the outside world, and then continue to communicate with the outside world in the exact same way, right? And then obviously everyone has heard about this thing called coronavirus, but I am really struck at the people in my life, you know, like an an ex who I who literally has not spoken to me since telling me to fuck off in two thousand and six, 
got in touch to ask about like whether or not they could see their grand because they were sufficiently confused by the thing that we and they were like oh who's the person i know who's like cursorily involved in british politics and i just think we're once again kind of forgetting that people have heard about coronavirus but they haven't actually heard yeah like actually like these weird buzzwords of socially distanced let alone sedulous are words and i still do not know what it means i just think people are getting lost in this weird rabbit warren of of buzzwords and it is so strange from the government that um, was just recently elected on a campaign of get Brexit done that seemed to understand the need for simplicity of messaging to cut through the noise, that you needed to say that about a million times before people started to associate the Conservatives with getting Brexit done, that we don't have an equivalent simple message for a much more important thing. Yeah, happy birthday seemed to cut through. You know, that was that's yesterday's epidemiology, right? You know. A very Boris Johnson phrase would literally be lock up your daughters, wouldn't it? Like, that's what we have to, or your grandparents in this case, or, or everyone, lock up yourself. But yeah, it's odd, because I don't think any of us would have, if, if at the start of this crisis we'd been asked to guess what we would have been saying, we thought the government was mostly doing well and mostly doing badly. I don't think we would have said, oh, well, mostly the economic stuff, yes, they need to do more for the self-employed, yes, there are problems with the welfare bit of it, but we wouldn't have expected to go, the income protection stuff has been done well for 75% of the workplace. But the communication is a disaster. I really don't think anyone else would have thought that would be the the order that they would get things right and wrong in. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So our question today is from Patrick off the back of the news that the former Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond has been cleared of sexually assaulting nine women and he's been found by the jury not guilty on 12 of the sexual assault charges uh, while another was found not proven. So all of those have been cleared. Patrick, what was your question about that? Uh, My question is, what does it mean for the future of the Scottish National Party and the independence movement in Scotland more broadly? So part part of that answer is, I guess, about the part of the broader thing that is a tragedy about it, which is whatever the rights and wrongs of this case, I think that whenever you have a situation in which a high-profile case uh, of this type ends in this type of verdict, it, it, I think it's very painful for people in general and it, it brings up a difficult... I think many of the, the lessons that may be learned from this in the independence movement are not good things, right? Because innocent until proven guilty is a very important principle. However, due due process is also an important principle. And I think in an odd way, this result will strengthen the hands of people who seem to think that it was almost the fact of him him, uh, being found not guilty or not proven on all charges. You kind of have people almost suggesting that, oh, well, why did we even bother with the court case, which is very much not how 
these things should be done. And that has already happened because um, already Joanna Cherry, current MP, um, who's going to be standing for the Scottish Parliament soon, and a salmoned protégé has already called for an inquiry into why those complaints were brought against Alex Salmond in the first place and, and how they were handled within the party. So I agree. I think that people may seek to delegitimize the entire process or undermine the very fact of, of looking into those sorts of things and undermine the idea that those things should be taken very seriously, no matter what the end verdict mm. is. Yeah. And the important thing is that going through a process like this for whoever is making the accusations is known to be a very distressing thing to have to do. So the only real thing that these people making the allegations would have got out of this process other than that distress would have been you know to be heard and to have their stories whether you know proven or not heard by the public and the jury and through the court court reporting that that was allowed and that hasn't happened because of another all-consuming news story that has sort of disguised it so you know who knows what what it feels to have gone through the process of having to um having to do all of the the distressing stuff and not not getting any of the sort of broadcast stuff in return, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and I think, because I think the odd thing is, is if we weren't going through this deeply surreal national, indeed global crisis, then of course it would mean that the central political question would be, what does this mean for Nicola Sturgeon's leadership of the SNP? In the, you know, the last SNP conference was the most divided I think the SNP conference has publicly been for some time which I mean admittedly you've got to adjust for inflation and then the most divided SNP conference basically means about as united as like Labour in 1994 but I you know I think it's one of the things that's quite striking about the kind of the me too effect in British politics is that it is likely that when the dust settles, the people whose careers will have been uh, ended or at least have their end brought forward may well be Carwin Jones, the first minister in Wales, and Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister in Scotland, both of whom did at least take accusations, whether they were true or not, but take them fairly seriously. And I do think that is going to be a, a leave a huge mark on on British politics in general. So the Labour leadership race is coming to an end. I find it hard to believe myself, but Patrick has done how many page long uh, profile? Patrick? Well, but at the moment, about 6,000 words. So it's, um, you know, a long piece of work about, about Keir Starmer, Keir Starmer the man, Keir Starmer the barrister, and Keir Starmer the politician. So there's lots of interesting stuff in there. Some of it, you know, I, I went up to York before the outbreak really broke out, as it were, to... Um, to have a, a sit down with Keir Starmer before he addressed a half full room full of Labour members. Admittedly, it was a Friday night, and he did get about sixty five people in there. So I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not sneering at him for that. And the coronavirus outbreak had just kicked in. In terms of what people want to know, the question on everybody's lips is who is the real Keir Starmer? In fact, Keir Starmer invited a blind um, retired publican from Scotland by the name of Caroline, who had asked a question at the Sky News hustings in Dewsbury. She said. I can't see you, can't see any of you. So can all of you describe me in such a way that makes you want to vote for me? And Keir Starmer basically said to her, well, come on, come with me to my constituency for a day and you can see the real me. But Carol Adam has been given you know, a luxury that lots of Labour members and indeed Labour MPs feel they've been denied, which is who is the real Keir Starmer? And the answer, disappointingly, 
for people on the right and the left is that he is the sort of fairly old school European red green style politician that he and and you know campaigning barrister that he that he you know talks about in his campaign material. The interesting question with Keir Starmer is how his principles have interacted with the phases later in his career where he's exercised executive power. So he was always a campaigning defence barrister and then became a, interestingly, a formative moment in his career, he cites, is when he became a human rights advisor to the Northern Ireland Policing Board, which is a body set up under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement to ensure the PSNI, actually the terms of the Patton Report, rather, uh, which replaced the Royal Ulster Constabulary and, you know, is meant to oversee the work of the PSNI and ensure it's representative of both communities. Keir Starmer, at that point, says, you know, he'd always been anti-police. You know, he, he, he'd, all, he'd written articles for Trotskyite pamphlets in the 80s, or a Trotskyite pamphlet in the 80s about how the police, um, questioning whether the police had a, you know, who were they, who were they policing for? What were they policing? You know, did they have a legitimate role in civil society? Um, and at that point, in the early noughties, when he was advising the PSNI, he came to realise that actually... He achieved more in advising the PSNI in terms of, you know, um, representing both communities, et cetera, et cetera, and on its human rights obligations than he had, you know, in cases that he'd taken five or six years in the courts uh, against police forces. And then at DPP, he came to wield executive power and he often speaks to Labour members about running a big organisation, um, you know, reforming the internal culture of an organisation. And so the interesting question then is less what does Keir Starmer believe? Well, we know what he believes and he really believes it. It's not opposed. He believes it in the same way that Jeremy Corbyn, you know, believed that British troops should get out of Ireland in the um, 1970s and 80s and, you know, that apartheid was bad. You know, Keir Starmer believes the things he still believes then, but unlike Jeremy Corbyn, and I guess this is where the the question of does he really believe it come in, he collided with power at a much earlier stage in his, indeed before his political career began in terms of wielding executive power, no disrespect to the Harringay Council Planning Committee, which is um, Jeremy Corbyn's last big job before the Labour leadership. So it's, it's really interesting. And um, I think that answer that Keir Starmer genuinely does believe what he believes might disappoint both the people on the left who paint him as a sort of um, a revisant and turncoat and also people on the right who believe he is one of them. Wow, so Keir Starmer really is what he says he is on the tin. I mean, it's weird because Anoush, as you know, the other the other scarred veteran of the 2015 general election result, does that, he, considering the things Keir Starmer has said and done in this campaign, do you hear that and start getting kind of flashbacks to the world's most horrible but also least surprising exit poll? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, there's definitely parallels, aren't there? But I think... I don't know, because we're in this new world of leadership where say whatever you like about Jeremy Corbyn, but he did kind of remove those taboos on certain socialist or radical policies, if you want to call them that, that um, the Labour Party was kind of shy of broaching or at least were trying to say, but in not so many words under Ed Miliband, all of those taboos have been removed. So where Ed Miliband was like, mm, you know, we'd let the franchises run out on the railways and then, you know, maybe they'd be taken back into public ownership, but maybe not all of them or whatever. I can't even remember the policy, but it was, you know, mealy mouthed versions of what Jeremy Corbyn sort of said full throatedly. Now that those barriers have been taken away, then Keir Starmer can sound like and as Patrick has said, is one of those guys uh, who who supports these kind of big structural changes to our economy, which Ed Miliband could never quite articulate. 
in terms of the electability of, the, of that kind of offer, so far it's not been proven that, that that really works or resonates with the public. But it means that Keir Starmer is going to sound a hell of a lot more exciting than Ed Miliband because as a Labour leader, you don't need to be shy about the kind of policies that you're proposing anymore because of that precedent that, that yeah, exactly. has been set. If this is the real Keir Starmer and he believes in these things, then presumably he is going to campaign. Yeah, exactly. And, the, and one of the really interesting things Keir and I talked about was he was talking about how his ambition at the bar and, you know, the point, you know, he, he was among 30 barristers to set up a, a, a then radical, well, still radical by the standards, of the conservative standards of, of the uh, Bar of England and Wales chambers on Doughty Street. You know, they were among the first chambers to move out of the Inns of Court mm. and set up their own chambers to sort of break the um, legal cartel. He was talking about, and also the QC, Gavin Miller, who I also spoke to for the piece, were talking about how they wanted to, you know, in the courts and, you know, more broadly, unite what uh, Hilary Wainwright, the sociologist who edits um, Red Pepper, called, you know, had this seminal work of um, feminist theory in the 80s called Beyond the Fragments, the fragments being the sort of vociferous liberation groups, um, elements of left-wing politics. Keir Starmer's ambition was always to unite, you know, within the Labour Party or behind the Labour Party, the feminist movement, you know, the environmental movement, LGBT, the LGBT movement within the Labour Party. And uh, in a way, while it's not, you know, directly comparable Jeremy Corbyn has you know in a way and Stephen you wrote a very good piece on this for the FT in the summer of 2016 that I I come back to very often it's sort of you know why is Jeremy Corbyn you know why has Labour avoided the fate of so many of its sister parties on the continent in terms of losing ground to a radical left party it's because well Jeremy Corbyn has essentially essentially welded both those parties together at once you know the the British Labour Party is both um you know the German Greens Delinker and um the um S, uh, SPD at once isn't it so you know because of first past the post so in a way Jeremy Corbyn has sort of united the electoral fragments if not all the liberation group fragments in such a way as you say Anoush to make Keir Starmer's job a lot easier in terms of being the Keir Starmer he always has been well it's, it's an odd one isn't it because the thing I found really fascinating is after the 2017 election result, I kept being invited to kind of, you know, various European parties to kind of talk about, you know, the uh, socialists and social democratic rights to talk about, like, you know, how they could recreate what Labour had done. And the thing I would always do, because I always take the lead, and if you can't take someone's free food and then depress them, you shouldn't do it. I go, well, but look, <laughs> while this might work on the first past the post, and it did get, you know, only... You only need 10 seats to end up in a hung parliament from, you know, we shouldn't forget just how, how close they were in 2017. It's still it's still the same failed coalition from a European perspective, right? It still couldn't take power with 50% of the vote plus one. But of course, the other interesting inheritance I think here has is that broadly, most political coverage in this country, particularly on the important broadcaster, i.e. the BBC, is solely about whether or not someone is fighting with someone, right? And because of how far to the left Labour had got in 2019, I think you could probably end up with a policy position that was objectively to the left of its 2017 manifesto. But because you would have had to break a lot of China to get there, you know, the thing that Clinton complained to Blair about in 2000, he was just like, you know, the press is writing about Bush as if he's some kind of moderate because he said something mean about the right one time. And there's an awful lot of, I mean, even just abandoning the WASPy pledge, right, which you could literally have done for quite literally £58 billion less by just putting funding the social, the social safety net slightly better, will make Keir look a lot more right-wing, quote-unquote, than the actual position is. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. 
You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush, Alva Ray, and Patrick Maguire. We're produced by Nick Hilton. Our music is Devil by the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.